This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Um, <clears throat> if you've noticed in our liturgy, uh, we read from Leviticus. Uh, Sarah, you did a wonderful job. Uh, it's not easy to read from Leviticus. Uh, and uh, we often like to skip over that in our Bible in a Year program. So if any of, the, any of you guys have started those, uh, we usually get bogged down somewhere in, in, in about Leviticus. Uh, the laws about dipping things in blood is what really, really starts to like overwhelm us. And we're like, what, what is going on right here? Passage that we read today from Leviticus uh, had to do with the responsibilities of somebody that had a leprous disease, uh, so some sort of skin ailment. It probably uh, includes many, many things uh, that we would diagnose uh, as skin diseases today. Uh, what their responsibility was uh, to their covenantal family uh, once they had been healed of that disease, and there were certain sacrifices and rites that went through that. And we're going to look at that today because we are going to be looking at a leper. Not just a leper, but also someone who is paralyzed. Now what we're going to see from these two stories is people that request things of Jesus. And I wonder if you've ever requested something from Jesus. Usually we call it prayer. Uh, sometimes we call it petitions. Uh, we, we ask God for something. And it's interesting because not just Christians do it, right? Uh, we pray to confess those things that we've done wrong that burden our souls. Uh, we pray when we are overwhelmed by the things that are happening around us, things that are outside of our control. Uh, in fact, if you know your Bible well, Paul says that we are to pray without ceasing. But one thing that marks all of these prayers uh, is usually some sort of request, some sort of ask. There's an ask involved. Now, I hesitate to say that we're going to be talking about prayer today uh, because our passages will not answer every question that you have about prayer. Uh, they won't answer uh, many questions that people come as, as far as uh, how, how God hears them, how God acts on them. And why? But it does outline some very important things about how Christians pray. We're going to look at three of those aspects today. And again, there are books that have been written on prayer, uh, and the rest of Scripture is chock full of examples of prayer, and we'll look at a couple of those outside of our passages. But in these passages, we're going to see that Christian prayer is marked by a humble request, by reoriented expectations, and by faithful responses. And although Christian prayer is marked by these things, one thing that should stand out uh, in our passage above all is that these people made a request to Jesus himself. They weren't just casting prayers up to their ancestors. Uh, they weren't just calling out to the universe. Universe, please make this right. I hope that things could go my way. They had specific requests from someone who they were sure could answer it. And we're going to investigate why they thought that today. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes from Luke chapter 5. Starting in verse 12 and following. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. 
But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise Pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're here exploring what marks Christian prayer. Uh, We've got these three areas that we're going to explore, a humble request, a reoriented expectation, and faithful responses. Uh, And we've got two different stories here. And so as we work through these points, what I'm hoping to do is for us to compare and contrast how these stories work. Uh, Luke put them together uh, in his gospel in this chapter, these stories of Jesus' healings, put them back to back. And for a particular reason. He intended us to see some of the comparisons between them, to see how Jesus responded to these people's requests, how he changed their expectations and how he commanded them to respond. So first is presenting a humble request. Uh, The first thing uh, that, that we should notice between these similar stories is that both present a request, although they do it somewhat differently. Uh, Now, we're going to start with the first story, with the leper. So I'll be going back and forth between the leper and the paralytic, uh, and so you can kind of keep tra- track in your passage which paragraph I'm in there. Um, but starting with the leper, I think this is how most of us would think about petitioning God for something. When we go to God in prayer, when we ask him for something, it's us going before him, falling on our face, and asking him for our needs to be met. And the first thing, and it seems really basic, <laughs> that we should learn from this leper is that he recognizes his need. Now, of course, it's obvious for him. It's all over his skin. He knows what his most desperate need is. He knows that he is ostracized because of it. And so he lays aside any pride and dignity he might have about staying where he was supposed to stay and kind of wondering whether or not Jesus was going to come find him. And he pursues Jesus down, falls on his face, and asks him. This isn't someone who is ignorant of their needs. This isn't someone who's blind to themselves. This isn't someone who's arrogant enough to believe that he only has a little thing that he needs help with. He needs help with something that no one else can address. This desperation makes him humble. This awareness of his own estate 
awareness of where he is before Jesus allows his request to be humble. And the first thing that marks a Christian's petition and a Christian prayer, so when we ask God for something in prayer, is humility. And in order to have that kind of humility, we need to be deeply aware of our extreme need. His was painfully evident. Ostracized from his community, kept outside of the camp. His needs he knew. Some of you have needs like that. You know exactly what it is that you're so desperately asking Jesus for. But some of us, when our bodies work as they're supposed to, uh, when we have good relationships, we become a little bit blind to our desperate need. And maybe like the Pharisees that we're going to see a little bit later, we can start to think that we just need a little bit of help. This will be a theme that we'll see throughout. Christian prayer is marked by a deep awareness of our extreme need. We have no other recourse. We are without hope. And we are driven not just to some uh, impersonal calling out to the sky, uh, not simply to family to help us. We are driven to God himself, saying you are the only one who can fix this. And so I have a question. Does your awareness of your own need drive you to Jesus? Because I think for myself, a lot of times uh, what drives me to Jesus is I'm looking for a partner. I'm looking for an investor. You know, like I've done 50% of the work. Maybe I'll do 45. God's bigger, you know. Uh, and I just need him to cover the other 55. Like, man, Lord, I really, I would really love this thing to happen. Could you just chip in and get me there? I know I need you. Is our disposition when making requests truly humble? Or are they still a little bit prideful? Still unwilling to admit how desperate our need is? Are we able to set aside our pride and in some sense our dignity and say, God, I am hopeless without you. I need you. Now we'll see more clearly in our second story that Jesus is interested uh, in much more than simply uh, our presenting issues. Uh, Jesus is actually able to see beyond them into issues uh, and, and requests that we don't even know how to ask for. But even if our bodies function and even if we may not be contagious, Jesus is going to make clear that we have an internal and spiritual need of Jesus that should make us desperate. It should shape the way that we request things from him. Shape our posture laying on the ground, recognizing that he is the only one. Now we're moving on to our second story here uh, of the paralytic. Now the paralytic is fascinating in many ways. But maybe most importantly is that for the paralytic, he doesn't speak at all in this story. It says that he gives glory to God. So maybe at the end, uh, there's some unrecorded text that we get from him. Furthermore, it's not him that brings himself. He is unable. It is his friends who carry him there. It's fascinating. These friends hear about Jesus being in a place and say, our friend needs Jesus. In some sense, these friends can lay aside enough of their own pride and dignity not only to see themselves as they truly are before Jesus, but also to see their neighbor, their needs, and their desperate need for Jesus. 
But it's interesting there because the friends don't just stop at telling their friend how desperately they need Je- he needs Jesus. <laughs> They're just like, man, you know what you really need? You need this guy who's going around healing everybody. They pick him up and they carry him to Jesus. Now, carrying a person is difficult. I don't know if you've ever had to do it. It's going to be sweaty, awkward, especially once you arrive and you've walked some distance and maybe it's a stretcher or something, you know, and you've got a few of you, so you're like, maybe this is working. But you're still like, start, you're, you're tired, you're giving up. And then the crowd is there and you say, now what are we going to do? Well, let's climb some stairs. You're like, man, going upstairs uh, with somebody who like doesn't walk well is always a scary thing. But like having to carry someone upstairs is a whole nother thing. They carry them upstairs. And then they say, you know what we need to do? We need to bust through this roof and remove some of the tiles. And we need to lower this invalid down through the roof. It's shocking. But these friends aren't recorded as saying anything. In some sense, their request, their humble request, was made not so much by their words, but by their actions. So you might say, if the leper could bring his own request before, he made it with his own words, right? But when we see the needs of others, actually their actions spoke. Their actions spoke even to Jesus, because Jesus can say, when he saw their faith, he looked at the man and he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. I want to talk about Jesus' response in a second. But notice the humility of both requests. The humility of the leper to be able to um, fall before Jesus and acknowledge his, his own place before him and say, you are my only hope. And also notice the humility of the friends. Friends who are willing to look past themselves, see the desperate need of another and carry them there despite cost to themselves. You see, we must lay aside our own dignity and pride not only to be able to see ourselves clearly before God and to make a humble request, but also to be able to carry others to Jesus. What does it look like to carry your friends to Jesus? And at a minimum, from our story, we can learn that it it means to carry them not only with your words, but also with your actions, to care for them with your actions. It means not envying your neighbor's house, car, or wife, like the Ten Commandments ask us, but also protecting, defending, and advocating for your neighbor to the best of your ability. It means the same for your coworkers. It means being able to see their infirmities, their disabilities, uh, things that they are not good at, and instead of um, slipping into annoyance, desperation, and hatred, responding with compassion, long-suffering, and love. How do you respond when you see the spiritual, emotional, leadership failures of your neighbors, coworkers, friends, children, and spouses? Does it make you angry? Or does it bring you to prayer? To humbly petition Jesus to intervene. When we recognize how desperate our need is, our requests take a different disposition, one of humility and one of action. So the first thing that we can learn about Christian prayer is that we present humble requests. Humble requests, extremely humble And we take these requests to Jesus, but i got to be honest, sometimes we're hesitant to take these requests to Jesus, right? Now, there's an age-old saying, uh, expect little and you won't be disappointed. And uh, I think probably a lot of us in this room kind of embrace that as a general rule of thumb in our lives. Like, I don't really want to get my hope up. 
uh, because I really don't want to be disappointed. The disappointment is worse than expecting anything. I don't like the highs and the lows. I'd rather just stay steady. Expect little and you can't be disappointed. And when this transitions into prayer and we take this logic into prayer, it's part of the reason that we don't present our requests is because we're afraid that we might receive a no. We're afraid that we might be disappointed. The leper in our story maybe have wondered the same thing. Like I can imagine him like somewhat being confident, like Jesus is there, I'm going to go find him. And he's like strolling up and he's like, I got this. But then as he gets there, you know, his anxiety is rising, his chest is tightening. And then he falls down on his face. And at this point, he's shaking. Because he knows that although Jesus could make him whole, maybe Jesus won't. Maybe Jesus, like the rest of the crowd that he is pushing through, is scattering. Maybe Jesus will take a few steps back. And so you can see him as he falls, and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I wonder if we've ever felt like Jesus was going to take a few steps back from our requests, afraid that he might be contaminated by it, that your request might be repulsive, uh, that uh, maybe if you, if you don't imagine this, uh, that you hesitate to expect a lot from Jesus in your request. You don't even go to ask him because you're kind of afraid that your faith might come undone. You guys ever thought about that? Like you're like, man, if I ask God for what I really wanted, if I really petition God for what I wanted day after day, and Jesus says no day after day, I'm afraid that my faith would come undone. I would encourage you to ask those hard questions of Jesus. I would encourage you to go to him with your requests, and I would encourage you to see how Jesus responds, and we can see how he responds even in our passage. How did Jesus meet the request of the leper? This untouchable man coming through the crowd, nerves rattled, falling before him and saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus bends down, touches the untouchable, and says, I will be clean. Have you ever just paid attention to how sweet that exchange is? <laughs> that Jesus touched the untouchable. A man who may not have felt another a human touch for many months or years, who had been isolated and ostracized. When he presents Jesus with his request, Jesus' disposition towards him is, I will. We need to recognize that Jesus' disposition towards our request is to will to do them. Now, from our second story in the paralytic, we learn something very important about Jesus' will concerning our requests. Because everything in this story about the paralytic, back to back to the story about the leper, makes us seem that the same answer is going to follow through, right? Uh, someone breaks in unannounced and makes a request of Jesus. With the leper, breaks through the crowd, falls before. Uh, with the paralytic, uh, the guys are carrying him. They go up the stairs. They're literally breaking through the roof. And although there's not an audible request, there is clearly an action being made to say, Jesus, do something. And Jesus doesn't do the same thing. Jesus doesn't meet their expectation. With a leper, he said, yes, I will, you're healed. But with the paralytic, Jesus looks at him and he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And everyone's confused. 
Like everybody in the whole room is confused. The Pharisees, the paralytic, maybe even especially the paralytic friends. Like you could imagine them if they were recorded as responding, they could be like, Lord, God told us how we can be forgiven of our sins. There's sacrifices, there's offerings. He promised to cover them if we made them. We can worry about the sin thing later. It's, it's an important thing, it's true. But we're, we're here for you to heal him. Now the Pharisees and scribes, uh, they're spot on with their theology. They, they look at that and they go, that's blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. In our first story, the leper's expectations were met, but in the second story, their expectations were not met, at least not immediately. Why didn't Jesus answer their request immediately? And it's because Jesus needed to reorient their expectations. I had mentioned earlier that sometimes we come with just our surface level needs because that's what blinds us. That's kind of what consumes our thoughts. And in fact, the Bible will describe us so much so that our surface level needs are sometimes the only things that we can see. We're actually blind to our most deep needs. We're unaware of what they are. We don't even know how to ask for them. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to not immediately meet the expectations, the request, the prayer request of the person that was brought before him. He just answers out of left field. Your sins are forgiven you. But he needed to reorient their expectations. Their expectations were too small, too surface. Uh, important, Jesus cared about them, but Jesus had different ends. They weren't, uh, you know, they may have been expecting an answer, a yes, a no, maybe even some allegory about how in the new heavens and the new earth their bodies are going to be healed, and so if you could just wait for that time, you know, everything's going to be all right. Uh, just, just wait this time. They were expecting some sort of answer. Jesus is talking about sins because Jesus was trying to make a point about who he was. The paralytic needed something much deeper than he could see. Now, as good Jews, they knew they needed forgiveness of sins. But they needed to see Jesus. See, the Jewish theologians that are surrounding Jesus this time that are saying blasphemy, they, they got it right. Only God can forgive sins. That's why Jesus kind of goes uh, into this big explanation uh, about how, uh, which is harder to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. Now, we would say, well, it's harder to forgive sins. Only God can do it, right? Uh, but the proof is in the pudding for the man to get up and walk. Like, if you can do the one, then he's probably telling the truth about the other, right? Well, Jesus follows through with the one. The man gets up and walks. But Jesus' point through the whole story is that I am the one that is going to forgive these sins. It's me. They thought that they could achieve forgiveness of their sins without Jesus. And Jesus is there reorienting their expectations to say, forgiveness of your sins is actually here. In fact, much more than that, what Jesus promises uh, by claiming to be the Son of God himself and the Messiah to be there is that he is coming to make all things new. He is coming to answer expectations in their own hearts that they didn't even know that they had. And this is really our second point of what marks Christian prayer. We need our expectations reoriented. Reoriented not only to who Jesus is as the one who forgives us of our sins, but to 
um, in, in how deep our need is, we need to be able to understand that Jesus is answering needs that we aren't even aware of yet. I heard uh, one pastor say it this way, by God's grace, uh, God only allows us to understand like two or three of our sins at a time. <laughs> because if he were to overwhelm us with all of the sins that we are committing at all times, it would crush us. We couldn't handle it. We need our needs reoriented, not to just saying, oh, I need a little bit of Jesus for these one or two things. Our expectations need to be reoriented to who Jesus says he is in all of his fullness. And what Jesus promises us is so much better than we could have hoped for. Because you've got to understand, this, the leper that came to ask for healing was going to get sick again. The paralytic that walked away was one day going to lay down on his bed and not get back up. Death was going to hold them all. Of course, their surface needs overwhelmed them, and Jesus cared about them and healed their bodies. And that's hugely important for all of us. And yet Jesus said, but I came for so much more because I came to prevent death from having power over you forever. I came to give you new life. I came to restore a relationship with God that you have lost for all of time. I am here because I am God towards you. And what we learn when we look at Jesus and God towards us is that God's plan, God's will for us, when he reaches down and touches us and says, I will to heal you, may not be what we expected to happen, but it is what's good for us. So just to make this real simple, because I feel like I'm up here, when you go with your prayer request to God and they are not answered immediately and you feel like you've been praying them forever, your orientation should be shifted to see everything that Jesus promises you. It is not all immediately present to us at this very moment, but that he promises so much more than we even knew how to ask for. Christian prayer is rooted in a humble acknowledgement of our own desperate need, and so we make humble requests. Uh, but Christian prayer is also rooted in reoriented expectations, uh, being able to align to trust that God's will is actually what is good for us, greater than we could have possibly imagined. But there's one more aspect of Christian prayer uh, that we see here, and it, and it strikes us as a little odd, and that is a faithful response. And I say that it strikes us as odd because usually, you know, the prayer ends with amen, uh, and then that's where we say prayer would end. So to talk about the response that follows is a little strange, but bear with me. Um, these guys uh, present uh, their requests. Uh, they are granted, and then they are commanded by Jesus to do things, Right? Uh, the leper's commanded to tell no one, wash, show himself to the priest. In the second story, the paralytic is told to rise, pick up his bed, and go home. Um, both obey, uh, and I think that what we learn here is simple and yet profound truth about the Christian life and about how our prayers are answered. Like, you've always wanted to know how your prayers are answered, right? They're answered in obeying God. It seems real simple. <laughs> the answer to your prayers, your deepest needs, are never going to be found in disobeying God. If you've ever had a question of like, should I obey God or should I disobey God? Now, we would all say like, well, that makes a lot of sense. But I wonder if you've ever prayed this prayer. Bear with me. God, if you can give me A, B, and C, I'll stop X and Y and I'll start doing Z. Maybe some sort of kind of leverage of uh, God's granting of our requests. 
God's response would be, when you stop doing X and Y and you start doing Z, you will find that your deepest needs will be met. Our prayers are answered in obedience. If you want to see your prayers answered, if you want to see the deepest longings that you didn't even know that you had addressed, you have to obey Jesus. Because if Jesus looks at you and he says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk home, and you don't do it, you'll stay on the mat. Your prayer will not be answered. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. And I know that's a weird saying. So here's what I'm not saying. <clears throat> I'm not saying simply have more faith Simply behave better, and God will answer all of your prayers in the affirmative. That's not what the Bible promises. And if you want to hear about a great example, uh, let's look at Jesus. Uh, Jesus never sinned, right? Always did what the Father wanted, uh, went above and beyond the call of duty, we could say. Uh, and yet, he makes a request of God in a garden at one point, right before he's about to be crucified. He's in a garden, and he's praying, and he prays to God, and he says, God, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. And it's interesting, right, the overlap with the leper, Lord, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus, out of anyone, had a right to say, I've done everything that you've asked. And God's response was not to answer his request in the affirmative. He answered it in the negative. And Jesus obeyed. And we can learn something from that as we read later in the New Testament it talks about this, this process of obeying God even into suffering, even into pain. Caused Jesus to be the name that is above every name. So that God could lift him up from the powers of death and set him above every other rule. King of kings and Lord of lords. Even in the midst of injustice, Jesus could pray receive a negative answer from God and obey anyway. Now I wonder if in the face of injustice and we pray and we ask God, please remove this injustice from me. I don't want to go through this suffering that these other people are putting on top of me. If that would cause our faith to falter some. And we'd be like, well, you know what? Fine. I'll just go back to that sin I've always wanted to do. In the leper and the paralytic's obedience, they had their deepest needs met. But there's another result of their obedience, and that is the glorifying of God that happens. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this catechism question. It's a little bit older. What is the chief end of man? And it says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's one of man's primary purposes. <laughs> um, and in this passage, at the end, there's a lot of glorifying God. The paralytic gets up. He's glorifying God. The scribes and the Pharisees are all looking at each other, and they're in amazement and awe, and they're glorifying God. And they've seen, we've seen amazing things today. But just three years later, they would be shouting, crucify him. What happened? Like, how could they go from glorifying God to shouting, crucify him? Well, it has to go back to those surface-level needs. We're all super happy when Jesus is addressing our surface level needs. We all get offended when Jesus tells us that our needs are much, much deeper. People might be willing to admit that they are sick, 
but we really don't like admitting that we're dead. We really don't like hearing that we are so beyond help that we need salvation. We don't just need an investor. We don't just need a helping hand. We need somebody to do everything for us. It's not just us saying, Lord, if I could just have this one skin disease cleared, then I'd be good and I would serve you faithfully forever. Because Jesus knows that that is not true. How many of you have gotten your prayer request answered and you have still returned to the same sins over and over again? There's something fundamentally wrong with us. The Pharisees thought this way, the I'm pretty good, I only need a little bit of help, right? Then I'd be all right. I know how to, uh, I, I know how to behave in the system and earn points with God. But Jesus' words would ultimately disorient them because he would say, no, you don't need just a little bit of Messiah. You don't need just freedom from the Romans. You need freedom from yourselves. You might be saying, Zach, are you saying that my sin is so awful, so contagious, and so wicked that I deserve the death penalty? That's what sin is. That's what God told Adam. In the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And although Adam continued to live by God's grace, spiritually speaking, the doctor had already called it. There was no more heartbeat. Life was gone. And we balk at this. Like, can this really be true? But we all die, right? I don't know anybody that claims that they're not going to die. The sentence follows through. Your sins deserve the death penalty. Jesus' response to the paralytic in particular, but in these stories, is designed to show these teachers of the law who think that they could have all of the theology right, think that they knew God, is to say, if you know God, you'll see me. You'll see me in everything that I have to do for you for salvation. You see, for Jesus, uh, raising, uh, causing the, the paralytic to walk uh, was, was the proof in the pudding, you know? He's like, how do you know that I can forgive sins? Well, this guy's going to get up and walk. And he gets up and walk, and everybody's like, what? This is crazy. Um, now the question still asked is like, but can he really forgive sins? The question before us today, and in all of Christian prayer, is who are you praying to? Are you praying to your own systems of how you think you're going to get things right, to some sort of karma if you just do enough good that it will return good back to you? Are you praying in a system where you just kind of call out hoping that the universe spins your direction? Or do you go in desperate need to the only one who can bring you from death to life? See, we learn about what Christian prayer and petition looks like in these examples, but we also learn something so much more significant. We learn something about who Jesus is. He is the one who came to bring dead things back to life. And the question for us is whether or not we will see Jesus for who he is and pray to him. Do we see him as God himself, or do we see him as just a good example for us? some ancestor that lived that we can just follow. And if we could just be like Jesus, then we'll all uh, experience some sort of nirvana. Is he just an impersonal universe that we call out to? Or is he the one who personally looks at you and says, I will be clean? 
Is he the one who wills a reorientation of our expectations so great that we get to understand how great his love is for us? Not just for our surface level needs, but for much deeper. And do we see him as the one that we should serve because he is worthy of all honor, all service, and all obedience? The real reason that Christians pray, and the real reason that Christians pray to Jesus and in his name, is because he is the only one who can help us. Amen? Jesus claimed that we were so bad uh, and that we needed somebody to deliver us, right? I mentioned that garden in in Gethsemane when he was praying, uh, and he asked uh, this cup of wrath to be passed from him. Uh, And just before that, he had sat down with his disciples, uh, and he he had given them this meal. And this, this meal was intended to teach them something fundamental about how desperately they needed Jesus, not just for surface-level things, not just for little petty sins. Uh, they needed Jesus to raise them from death to life. And they didn't understand it. And you can tell that by the, by the time it comes for him to be arrested and taken away, and by the time he's crucified, they are hiding in locked rooms, afraid that they're next. They didn't understand what Jesus was after. And yet he gave them this meal to remind them and remind us that his body was sacrificed for us. His blood was shed for us. And this is not just a reminder of of his death to pay for us, but also an assurance that he will come back to eat with us again. That just as his body was resurrected with blood in it, where he could eat fish before his disciples and be there physically present, He said, so too, all of you, you'll eat with me again. I did not just go into death, but I came into resurrection, and it's because of my great love for you. The night that Jesus was betrayed to be killed for us, he took the bread, and having blessed it, he broke it, and he turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said, take this bread and eat it. It is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. What Jesus meant in this action was for us to be reminded about how much we cost, that we were dead, and he was going to have to die. But what Jesus also meant by this meal was that it is his delight to give us himself. He doesn't do it hesitatingly. He isn't begrudgingly answering our requests. He is answering our deepest need by giving us himself. This table is for those who see Jesus giving himself to them in his fullness, who recognize their desperate need, who turn to him and to him alone. Uh, If this is not true for you, Uh, If you are not sure who Jesus says he is, if you're not sure about his claims about divinity and his ability to be able to answer your your deepest needs, I'd ask you to refrain from this portion of our service. Uh, Pray the prayer found in your bulletin. Um, Come and speak with me or one of the other staff members. We'd love to talk with you more about it and answer any questions that you might have and partake on another day. Um, We have a habit of practicing this every week here at Trinity. Uh, In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle, and we can go to our serving stations on my right and my left. There's a gluten-free option. Uh, Please notify your server if you need that for the bread. 
Uh, and for the wine, there is red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Holy God, we come to you humbly with a petition. A petition, and we would ask that, that we might see this table as set by you. That we have no rights to come to it by our own merits. That Jesus is the only reason that we can come to this table. That because of his body and blood shed for us, we are brought near. Because of his body and his blood, we are reminded of how deeply you care for us. How you care for our deepest and most pressing needs. Even those that you are blind to. Father, I ask that you would allow us to know this. Father, I ask you that you would allow all these in this room who are partaking, who have unanswered prayer requests and are wondering uh, how you are answering their deepest needs, that even in this small action, they would taste your nourishment, that you would see how far you went to provide for them, that you have not abandoned them, but you will pursue them to the utmost end. And I ask that you would allow us to know this now. In Jesus' name, amen.